Hello, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Mary Skinner, and you're listening to Prologues. I have a bit of a different episode for you today because I am sick. I originally had a different episode idea for this week, had it all planned out, and then I fell ill, and I've been down for the count for about three days, and I just didn't have it in me to do that original idea. So I popped a question box on my Instagram story, and I said it could be about anything. It could be girl talk, questions for me, situations you'd like a different perspective on, anything, and that's what we're going to cover today. I have not been this sick in a while. I usually don't get sick very often, and I've been sick three times this year, which I think is the most I've ever been ill in the span of one year, and I don't understand what's going on with me. This, I think I brought down on myself because for the last two or three weeks, I've been dealing with really unexplainable exhaustion and fatigue, even when I'm not doing anything that warrants being fatigued afterwards. And instead of listening to my body and resting, I was just getting mad at myself, and I kept feeling frustrated by how tired I was. And I literally would cry to Matt, and I'd be like, I feel so lazy. I don't understand why I can't get more things done. I had brain fog. I was just getting very angry at myself for not achieving enough, not being productive enough. And I wasn't resting because I thought I didn't have a reason to be tired. And because there was no reason, I wasn't allowing myself to rest. And then next thing you know, I'm waking up, and I have this raging fever, and it all makes sense. And looking back at those two weeks, at the time I was wondering, am I depressed? Is this a depressive episode? Like what's going on with me? It's not usual for me to feel like this unless I'm depressed, but I didn't think I was. And I just didn't, it didn't even occur to me that I could be coming down with something, but clearly I overran my immune system. And now I've been down for the count for three days. I'm not sure when this is going to be over. I don't have a fever anymore, luckily, but I still just have brain fog, exhaustion, sore throat, headache, like I have swollen lymph nodes, all these things. I tested negative for COVID, so I'm just assuming it's a very bad cold. But yeah, I just haven't been doing well lately. And I'm sharing this because if this was not a slap in the face to me that I need to listen to my body more, I don't know what is. Because looking back, clearly my body was trying to tell me for two weeks that something was going on. I was fighting off something. I needed to rest. And I didn't allow myself to do that. And instead, I probably made it worse by getting angry at myself and trying to push myself even harder, trying to prove to myself that I wasn't lazy, that I was fine. And then next thing you know, I'm pretty ill. So apologies if my voice sounds weird. I think it sounds weird. I can't tell if you guys do. I'm working through that. But I just wanted to share that as a reminder that if something, if you feel like something's off in your body, please listen to it because I really wish I had. And I feel like I preach listening to your body and resting. And then I always say like how important it is to rest and not feel guilty about it. And then the one time I don't do that, it turns out I really needed to. So sharing that, let that be a life lesson as we go forward into this episode. And I'm really excited to get to the questions that you guys sent. There were a lot of really good ones, and I just randomly went through and picked some. I also picked a few questions that seemed to pop up multiple times, and I'm just going to go through them. And hopefully we will be back to regularly scheduled programming next week because I'm resting. I really am resting. I've barely left my bed for three days. Matthew has been an absolute angel taking care of me and Fergus by himself. He's just been amazing, so I don't know what I would do without him right now. Question number one. What helped you the most when doing long distance? This one came up a couple of times. So if you didn't know, my husband and I did long distance for several months earlier this spring and summer because 
he had to move to Texas for work and I stayed here. It was our first time ever doing anything like that. Ever since my husband and I started dating several years ago, we just always lived close together. When we started dating, we lived half a mile apart. And then from that living situation, we went to living together. And so even though there had been situations where one of us took a weekend trip and one of us didn't, or one of us visited family and the other stayed home, things like that, we had never really been separate for more than like four or five days at a time. Before the long distance, we had never really been separate for more than four or five days at a time. So it was a really big change. And it took some adjusting. I don't think I was very good at it at first. It was also hard because the long distance started 36 hours after our wedding because of just his work situation. So I went from having the really big high, emotional high of the wedding to a big emotional low of him moving to a different state and then being on my own for the first time in years. It had been years since I'd lived alone. I'd never lived alone since living with him. Obviously, I'd, I'd never even been away from him for more than four or five days since we started dating. And part of that is also due to COVID. We started getting pretty serious right before COVID started. So the first several years of our relationship, there wasn't really opportunity to travel or anything. It's not like people were going on big like girls trips or boys trips or things like that. There just wasn't happening because of COVID. So this situation was our first taste at really being long distance. It was really hard. I struggled with it a lot at first. The first three weeks, I think, were the worst for me because I was just adjusting to all of the things I said before. Tips that I think worked for us. We set clear expectations for the level of communication we expected from each other on a day-to-day I think different people like different things. Some people want to text all day, every day. Some people don't care about texting, but they want a nightly FaceTime. You know, I think people expect different things and just getting on the same page was really helpful for us. Neither of us expected the other person to be texting us all day, every single day. We are both busy. We're both working. But we did have expectations that in the morning and at night, that's when we would catch up with each other. And then we would try to text each other like midday. He was an hour behind me at the time, so we timed it with his midday break. We would try to exchange, you know, like five or ten texts then, and we would call at night. We just got in a schedule with it, and I think that was the most helpful thing at first was just knowing when we were going to talk to the other person and when we could expect the other person to be on their phone replying and all these things. It was also really helpful for me because if I knew, okay, he's not going to be near his phone, he's not going to be available between these hours, then I'm not going to be looking at my phone hoping for a text. I'm not going to be like waiting around hoping that he'll text me because this is not the time of day that I know that he's available. And so that really helped too. It helped a lot to not just feel like I was constantly waiting around to hear from him. And that's why we kind of set that schedule. Obviously, if something happens or it's a day off or whatever, we would obviously text each other outside of those times or call each other outside of those times if we were able to. But it was very helpful to just establish these are the times that we're able to communicate during the day and these are the times that we can't. Part of that was also knowing each other's schedules. At the beginning of every week, we would share with each other, okay, what do you have going on this week? What does your week look like? For him, his weekly schedule was almost always the same and mine changes every single day. So again, just setting that expectation of when the other person would be available. Another thing that really helped us was FaceTime movie dates. Matt and I just really like sitting on the couch and watching a TV show together with like takeout food. This is definitely a COVID habit of ours that started years ago and we've just carried it with us. 
There is nothing that we like more than ordering some bomb takeout, maybe getting a bottle of wine, and then finding a great show or a great movie, and then just having a night where you pig out on the couch and like you fall asleep on the couch and you go all out. There's snacks, there's blankets, everyone's in like their clean pajamas, like just making a really big night out of watching movies on the couch. So we did that over FaceTime, which helped a lot. Amazon and Netflix have watch parties where you can send the other person a link to the show that you're watching and the show or movie will play at the same time on each person's screen. So you're watching it at the same time together. And then we would be on FaceTime during that. We would keep the FaceTime on mute so the other person's audio isn't distracting you. And then if we had something to say, we would just unmute, say what we needed to say, and then mute again. We did that all the time. It really, really helped. It helped us feel like we were having those date nights, having that time filled with intention together, even though we couldn't be side by side. I also visited him a lot. I visited him more than I think a lot of couples would be able to visit each other simply because I work for myself and I work from home and I can do my job from anywhere. And I was just fortunate enough to be able to. And when I visited, what really helped me feel part of his life there was just trying to assimilate into his day-to-day routine. So it helped me a lot to know that when I visited, I was getting a taste of what he was doing every single day when I'm not there. So we didn't make a big deal out of my visits. Like we didn't get hotel rooms or, I don't know, go out to a bunch of dinners or like try to pack a lot of date nights or anything into my time there. I wanted to go and see what he was doing day to day. I wanted to go to the same re- the same grocery stores he goes to. I want to cook the same meals he's cooking. I wanted to meet the people that he was working with. I just wanted to get a taste of what his life was like. And that way, when I wasn't there, I just understood the world that he was living in at the time. And then the last thing that really, really helped us is We always knew when the next time we were going to see each other in person was. We planned out our visits to each other in advance so that every time we had to say goodbye, we knew, okay, maybe it's two weeks from now, maybe it's a month from now, but I know the date I'm going to see you next. And that really, really helped. It always helps to know that you have something to look forward to. And there was never a moment where we had to say goodbye and we didn't know when we were going to see each other again. So I would always just have your next trip planned, no matter how far in the future that is. It just helps to know when you're going to see the other person. The coughs are going to be edited out, but I hacked up a lung no less than 50 times trying to record that one segment. Okay, moving on. What is your proudest accomplishment? This is a very nice question. Thank you for asking me. I think my proudest moment of this year so far is when I was invited to the White House which was in July. It was actually like the day before my birthday. Got invited to the White House to watch President Biden announce expanded access to mental health care resources. I got the invitation very, very last minute, like the day before. Was that the day before or two days before? It was within 48 hours of the event, very last minute. And I thought it was a joke until I clicked on the email address that it that the invitation was sent from. And I saw it was a .gov email address. And then my manager went on a little LinkedIn sleuth hunt and found the person who had sent me the email on LinkedIn. And it turns out it was all legit. But when I first got the email, I thought it was some kind of scam because who expects to just, I don't know, wake up on a Monday morning and it turns out you're getting invited to the White House. Oh, it was the day after my birthday. That's right. I got the invitation on my birthday and then it happened the day after. I was just really excited about that. And it was a very full circle moment for me because I've been living in this area for three years. As you guys know, my last job before I became self-employed as a content creator was working for the government. 
And it was just crazy to me that I was invited personally to attend the White House and listen to this announcement. On my way out of the White House, the event was over, I'm leaving. I was trying to figure out where I could call an Uber to. So in D.C., if you've never been, the White House and White House campus is very central in like downtown D.C. It's, it's just in the middle of the city. So I had to figure out how far do I have to walk to be able to call an Uber and they'll be able to come pick me up without having to go through a security checkpoint. So I'm leaving the White House and I walk up to this group of Secret Service guards and I am just want to ask, like, where can I call an Uber to? So I go up and I'm like, hi, what street do I need to walk to? I said, I think I need to go here. Is that okay? Like, where can I call the Uber? And they're being nice and they're like directing me and everything. And then I start walking on my way. And then a Secret Service agent comes up to me and says, are you Mary Skinner? And I thought, I'm in trouble. Oh my God, what did I do? I was like, oh my God, what's going on? I don't think I did anything. I was on my best behavior in the White House. I didn't do anything, I swear to God. She's like, are you Mary Skinner? And I'm like, yeah. And she told me that she followed me on social media. And it was the most surreal moment of my life. She asked to take a photo with me. And I literally said to her, are you kidding? I want to take a photo with you. You're a Secret Service agent. So I have this photo on my phone of being a Secret Service agent. And it was just so surreal. My entire day was so surreal. Getting to go, having that be a full circle moment for me, and then meeting a Secret Service agent, and then her saying that she followed me, which is the craziest thing I've ever heard of, because are you kidding me? It's a Secret Service agent. It was just so cool. And it's an experience I'm very, very grateful for. And I didn't really accomplish anything with that, but it was a very proud moment for me because I was only invited to go to that event because I had been very, I have been very vocal about my mental health on social media. And part of that is all due to you guys. Like there's no way I would have been invited if you all weren't here listening to me talk about my mental health. But I am also proud of myself for speaking about it because when I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder, nobody was talking about it. And if there was anyone on social media talking about being bipolar, it was in a very, like, informational, educational way. There were no, like, 20-something-year-old fashion, beauty, lifestyle, wellness influencers talking about being severely mentally ill and having bipolar disorder. And so when I started talking about it, I did that because when I was diagnosed, I had no one. I had no one to look up to. I mean, I don't think I deserve to be looked up to, but you know what I mean? Like I had no one to identify with. I had no one that could make me feel less alone. I felt so alone. I didn't know a single person who could relate to me or relate to my experiences. And I started talking about it online when I started social media because being bipolar and having OCD, like these things influence every single moment of every single day of my life. It would be impossible for me to show up authentically anywhere without talking about mental health. And I was just proud of myself for receiving that invitation because I only received that invitation because I have been brave, stupid, I don't know. I've been something enough to talk about these experiences online. And again, I really do think that I owe all of this to you guys because if you weren't here listening, it wouldn't matter what I said. What matters is that you all have, for some reason, decided you want to listen to me. And so... This entire experience altogether, I would say, is one of my proudest accomplishments because it's just something I value really, really highly. It was such a surreal moment. So I would say that's it. How do you heal when you're angry? Excellent question. 
As a fellow angry girl myself, I understand how difficult it is to heal from things that have made you angry. I have never been passive aggressive in my life, only aggressive. I've never been anti-confrontational. I have never run away from a confrontation, not a single time in my entire life, unfortunately for me. And I don't love that about myself. I don't love that I am not shy or passive. I wish I was more shy. I wish I was more passive. And so I've experienced a lot of situations that have made me very angry. And over the years, I've had to learn how to not let my anger control me or my thoughts. And it's way harder than it sounds. I feel like fellow angry girls can relate. Where are my angry girls? Where are my fellow angry girls who are trying to heal and who are trying to not let their emotions overpower them? In fact, my first therapist ever when I was a teenager thought I had anger issues. He told me that I had anger issues. Of course, now I know, again, this is all undiagnosed bipolar disorder, but he thought I had anger issues when I was being manic in front of him. I don't understand how some people's default when they're wronged is not to be angry. Like I have friends who can't find it within themselves to be angry about situations. They will feel hurt. They'll feel disappointed. They'll feel embarrassed, insecure. They'll feel distant from people, but they just never feel anger. And that's so foreign to me because I'm just an angry girl. And I want to know if you're an angry girl too. Please let me find my community with you guys. Please tell me that some of you guys are also recovering angry girls. So anyway, how to heal when you're angry, how to not let that control you. The best thing that I have discovered through trial and error is to hold my tongue until enough time has passed. That is the big thing. How do I heal? I give it time. And while I'm giving it time, I shut the fuck up. This is such a hard lesson to learn, and it's taken me 25 years of my life to learn this. And I would honestly say this year is the first year where I have actually been able to internalize this, and I think it's because my frontal lobe is developing. I was in a situation this year where I felt like I had been really wronged, and I was very angry. And in years past, I feel like I would have voiced that anger, and I would have let it burn through me. And this year, I decided I'm going to shut the fuck up, and I'm not going to say anything until enough time has passed that my anger has cooled off. And it was very healing, and I think it was the best way I could have handled the situation. I ended up being so incredibly proud of myself for doing that. It was like the first time where I'd been in a situation like that where I felt like I really handled myself in a way that I was super, super proud of. And it's because I gave it enough time to cool off and I didn't say anything in the meantime. I wish I could give you better advice than just give it time, but that's the only thing that's ever worked for me. And so it's the only advice I can authentically give you. Allow yourself time and space to feel all of your feelings. Get them out. Like you can rage journal. I've done that a bunch of times this year with this situation. I've also ranted about it in therapy, which is really helpful because I feel like anything you say to a therapist doesn't count. Gossip you say to a therapist doesn't count. Venting doesn't count. None of it counts because therapy is good for you and therapy is healing and you go to therapy to become a better person. And it's just kind of like, like a no rules zone in my head. So I did vent a lot in therapy and I rage journaled. But other than that, I really just kept my mouth shut, and I was really glad I did. 
So I would say find a very healthy, very private, safe outlet to voice your feelings, whether that's therapy or a journal, and then don't say anything otherwise until you've had enough time to cool. Because as fellow angry girls will know, it's very easy to say something you don't mean. It's very easy to say something you'll regret in the midst of anger, which is again why I'm like so confused why some people just don't feel anger the way that I feel it. I don't know. How can you not feel this urge to just pop off? I don't know. But I never feel good afterwards. I've never, ever felt good after getting angry. And so give it time. Give it time to cool off. Keep your mouth shut in the meantime. You're going to be really glad you did. Or at least I have been really glad that I did. Why didn't you change your name? I don't know what I want to do. Good question and one that I get all the time. So I did not change my name after I got married. My name is still Mary Skinner. I have absolutely no intention of changing it. Never say never, I guess, but I don't think I ever will. And I have a very simple reason for not doing it. I think some people thought when I did not change my name that I was trying to make a statement of some kind or it was like a big feminist gesture. And it's not, although I love that. Like, yes, girl, make a statement, make a big feminist gesture, 100% in support of that. But for me, it just wasn't. My reason was very simple. Mary Skinner is my name. Mary Gordon is not my name. I wrote down Mary Gordon on a piece of paper, wrote it a couple times. I wrote Mary Skinner Gordon, Mary Gordon Skinner. And I stared at the names and I tried to picture myself as that person. And I tried to identify with it. And I just couldn't. Mary Gordon's not my name. Mary Skinner Gordon's not my name. Mary Gordon Skinner's not my name. It's just not. Like I identify with my family so much. I feel like my family has been through a lot. I have a very big family and part of my identity because of the things that my family experienced when we were all growing up, a part of my identity has been so irrevocably shaped by my family that I will never, ever, ever be able to find other people on this earth who understand core parts of me like my family members can because of things that we went through. Like we have these bonding experiences and I'll just never be able to be as fully understood by anyone as I will be by different people in my family. And so for that reason, it was very important to me to retain my identity. I also just feel such a deep connection to my family and my family history. And I was very, 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 very close with my grandparents growing up. And I still am. One of them has passed and it was awful for me and awful for my family. Very close to the other grandparent. And when I think about my name and who I am, I see myself as an extension of them. I see myself as their descendant. And I see myself as a descendant of all the people in my family who came before me, people who had like real struggles. My family history is really interesting to me or the parts of my family history that we know of are so interesting to me. And I'm very proud to be who I am. I'm very proud that the people in my family who came before me got to the point where they could give me the life that I had. And I know that if I have kids one day, I don't know if I will, but if I have kids one day, I'll give them a better life than I had. And that's what I see my family doing over the last several generations. I just see like generations of people fighting to give their kids a better life than what they had. And I'm just very proud of that. I'm very proud of the things that my ancestors got through and overcame. And I'm just proud to be who I am. I'm proud to be a member of my family. It's just who I am. Mary Skinner is who I am. And putting another name onto my name isn't who I am. 
And I don't know how to explain it any better than that. It's just not who I am. And I feel like I hear this rhetoric sometimes that says, well, either way, you have a man's name. You're either taking your husband's name or you're keeping your father's name. Either way, you have a man's name. No, Mary Skinner is my name. My mother decided to adopt my father's family's name. And then Mary Skinner is the name that my father and mother decided to give me together. It's my name. It's not my dad's name. My mom decided to change her name, and so Skinner became her name. And she decided to give it to me along with my dad. It's my name. It's not my dad's name. It's my name. When a man gets married and let's say that their partner takes their last name, no one is saying you're taking your husband's father's last name. We just assume that the man is giving their his partner his name because it is his name and Mary Skinner's my name. No judgment whatsoever to anyone who approaches it differently. Both of my sisters changed their last name. Obviously, my mom changed her last name. Honestly, guys, I don't really care what anybody else does. I've never really sat down and thought about it. It doesn't take up any space in my mind. I don't care what anybody else does. But for me, I never really even seriously considered changing my name. I just always knew Mary Skinner's who I am. Mary Gord's not who I am. I would totally understand if you had a bad relationship with your family of origin and you wanted to change your name to become part of a new family unit. Makes total sense to me. If you just wanted to, I mean, I don't know, like there's so many reasons that make sense to me to change your name. I just didn't identify with any of them. So I think just do what feels right in your gut. And don't let anyone tell me that you should change it. I did get some shit for not changing my name. And I don't care because it's my name. It's not their name. It's mine. Ooh, guys, here's a fun one. Political systems in the U.S. versus Scotland. Are you thinking about that? So the wording of this question is a little bit vague. I'm not 100% sure what you meant by are you thinking about that. I would assume that you mean how are my politics going to be affected by moving to the UK or what my political affiliation is going to be in the UK. And I have thought about that. Over the last year, I have taken it upon myself to learn as much as I can about the UK's political systems and political parties, especially Scotland's political systems. As someone who won't be able to vote, I feel like there's a limit to how much I can participate in the political system. But I still want to be informed. I've taken a bunch of tests, those like quizzes that are like you answer 50 questions and it tells you where on the political spectrum you fall. I've done that. I've gotten different answers a few times. So that's why I'm not really relying on those quizzes. I just want to learn about what each party stands for, the history of the party, what they tend to vote for, who represents them, and then I figure I'll just go from there. But again, I won't really be able to vote, so I'm not sure how deeply I can be involved, but I do think it's important to know. So yeah, it is something I'm thinking about, actually. I'm trying to figure out what my political affiliation is. I don't know if this is the case for everybody. I didn't learn anything about UK political parties in school. I knew the vague basics. Like, I knew generally what each party stood for, but I didn't learn a lot about it at all. And so I'm kind of, I'm learning everything from scratch now as an adult. And it's been really interesting. I have enjoyed reading The Economist. I love The Economist. The Economist is one of my favorite airport and airplane magazines. Like every time I go to an airport, I get a Life Water or a Smart Water, and The Economist, and Vogue. And that is what I do on an airplane. After I drink my water and read those two magazines. I take a nap until it's ginger ale and Biscoff cookie time. And then I take another nap. That's my routine. I like The Economist because it helps me contextualize the UK political parties by seeing what they're actually up to. 
and seeing what the actual repercussions in the economy and culture are from different parties' decisions. I don't think I know very much yet. I still feel like there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot of history to catch up on, a lot I don't know. But yes, I am thinking about it and I'm trying to become informed. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't doing social media? Honestly, probably the same thing I was doing before this. I think I would still be writing and editing. I don't know if I'd be in the exact same job. Probably not. I think my time at that specific position was drawing to a natural end anyway. But I think if I wasn't doing social media, I just would have had like a lateral move and would have gone to another position at another company and done the exact same thing. I did enjoy my job. I didn't love the content that I was writing and editing, obviously, like working for the military. Didn't love that. But I did enjoy the actual work. Being a contractor for the DOD, for the federal government, no creativity absolutely no creative expression or wiggle room or flexibility. It was very strict and very rigid, as it should be. Like, it's it's the military, of course. I think my heart was really craving more creative expression and just freedom to kind of be myself. It was definitely feeling like a cog in the military machine. But listen, that job paid for my health insurance in a time when I really desperately needed it. And so I don't have anything bad to say about that job. Or that experience, I, it was exactly what I needed at the time. And that's the honest truth. That position was exactly what I needed at that time in my life. But I think I would have just probably gone to the private sector, maybe stayed in contracting to get a few more years experience and then transition to the private sector. But either way, I think I knew I needed to go private because, again, I wanted that freedom to be creative. So yeah, I would be doing the same thing I was before. I would still be a writer and editor because I really enjoy that. And one day, if social media completely ends for me and like the businesses that I'm trying to build at the same time as this career of mine is ongoing, if for whatever reason, everything related to social media was gone, I would go back to that because I did enjoy it. Okay, guys, this one is very juicy. Did your parents force you into the religious environment? And how did you mend that relationship? Big question. I still have not made a religious trauma episode because I still don't feel like I can. Still don't feel like I'm in the right place to do that. I don't know what it's going to take for me to get there. I just know I'm not there yet. I won't. I would not be able to make that episode without crying 50 times in the middle of it. And that's just the honest truth. But I have alluded many times in the past. I've spoken about it openly many times in the past. I grew up in a very toxic, high-control, fundamentalist, legalistic, cult-like Pentecostal environment. It was bad. It was very bad for my psyche. It was very bad for my family. It was the source of long-lasting, repeated, sustained trauma in my life. Trauma that I am in therapy for, trauma that I have been in therapy for for a long time. Extensive, extensive, extensive trauma. And a question I get a lot is, and I even got it a couple of times in this Q&A, is you speak highly of your parents, you have a close relationship with your family, and yet this happened. How do those two things reconcile with each other? I'll address the first point first. Did your parents force you into this? I guess sort of. I was a kid. Like, do your parents force you to go to school when you're a kid? Kind of. But you also just go because that's what you do. Like, I just went because it was what my family did. We attended this church. We were in this community. Force is an interesting word because I feel like force 
implies that there was another option that I wanted to do that my parents didn't let me do, which wasn't really the case. There wasn't really another option. Going to this church and being in this community was just what we did. So I guess so. If I didn't want to go, they did make me go. So I guess I just, I, I hesitate to use the word force. That doesn't feel descriptive of what was going on. It was just what we did. It was just what was expected. It was just the norm. I wasn't aware that there were other options. I wasn't aware that there were other worldviews. I was not aware that other people were being raised differently. I had a vague inclination. I kind of knew. I sort of knew other families. Not really. I really only knew other homeschooled families. I kind of knew because I could see in movies and in like TV, the limited amounts of like TV and movies we were allowed to watch that not everybody was being raised like this, but I didn't actually know what that meant. And I had no concept of what the world was like outside of this religious environment. I didn't start learning about what the world was like outside of that environment until I was 18 fucking years old when I moved away and I started going to college. Many times in my adult life have felt like a baby because developmentally in some areas, I'm still doing a lot of things for the first time. I have only been out of that environment for seven years. Seven years compared to 18 years is not a ton of time to like completely reshape your entire worldview. And I've done it, but it takes a lot. So yeah, did they force? I guess. I don't know. Sure. Kind of. How did I mend that relationship? Through a lot of very, very hard work. Very hard work. I made it clear to my parents pretty early on. They knew as a teenager, one, I'm having all these like mental health issues. Two, I'm back talking everyone in this church to shit like attitude problems out the ass like constantly arguing with people from the church constantly getting in trouble constantly making a fool of myself being loud and being just like disruptive and i'm glad i did i'm proud of myself for doing that it's hard when you're in that type of environment and you're being forced into a mold it's really fucking hard to break the mold and i did and i have since i was a teenager so they knew that I wasn't completely enchanted with these ideologies. And then I move away and it just starts becoming more apparent, I think, to my parents, like the life path that I'm choosing. Fast forward a couple of years, I think around the age of like 2021, 20, things start coming to a head and we have fights. We have bad fights, you guys. Remember how I said I'm a recovering angry girl? Imagine every angry girl you've ever met times a thousand that's me, and then double that, and that's my mom, and we're going head-to-head -head a lot. I have a great relationship with my parents now because I fought to get to this point, because I was brutally, deeply, incredibly honest about everything I hated about that element of my upbringing, everything I disagreed with. I was loud. I was aggressive. I would not be silenced. I stood up for myself so hard. I forced them to listen to me. And it took years and it took many periods of time where I wasn't speaking to them. And it took heartbreak and tears and just like, it was hard. And it was the best thing I've ever done because my parents are my best friends now. And I could not be more grateful for my relationship with my parents. I couldn't be more grateful for the fact that I'm not the only one in my family who's gone through this deconstruction, who has recovered, who's come out of it. I will never, ever, ever forget the moment where my parents apologized to me for the first time for that 
element of my upbringing. I cried. I talked about it in therapy for a long time. I told, like, it was just the most healing moment having, like, getting that apology. It was incredible. And I don't regret those fights and those periods of discord and disharmony. I don't regret it at all because my relationship with my parents now is really good. I, in fact, can't wait for my parents to get home from this trip they're on. They're getting home tomorrow. I can't wait for them to get home because I want to call my mom because I haven't talked to my mom in like two weeks, which is very unusual. And like, I really want to call her. So I mended that relationship by forcing my parents and me to confront these issues with brutal truth and honesty. And I didn't let up. And I fought for the good relationship. I fought for it. And it was hard. And it was worth it. That's the tea on that. <laughs> that could be an entire episode, honestly. I'm like trying to summarize years and years and years and years of the of this situation in like five minutes. And it's hard. But yeah, big part of my life. Big, 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 big part of my life, especially in my early 20s. I know you're married, but any advice for dating for us girls in the trenches? Hmm. Yeah, actually, I do have a couple pieces of advice because I feel like I was in the trenches before meeting my now husband. I think the best piece of advice I ever received, unfortunately, I received it too late in life. I didn't receive it in time to save myself from making a lot of mistakes. But the best piece of advice that I could give you is that with the right person, you never have to guess. You never have to wonder if they like you. The right person won't play games. The right person will not make you anxious and stress about it. Even if you're an anxious person, because I get it, I'm a really anxious person too. I overthink all the time. But I believe that with the right person, you don't have to wonder if they like you. You don't have to wonder what their intentions are. They make their intentions clear. Never for a single second had to wonder how Matt felt about me, what his intentions towards me were, if he saw a future with me, if he was serious about the relationship, all these things. Because once we started properly like speaking we were obviously like friends a little bit before this but once we started seriously considering each other as a dating prospect his intentions were clear from the very start and it, that was the first time i'd ever experienced that actually every dating experience i'd had prior to that was the very typical like you're kind of playing games you're being coy like you're sending out feelers you're talking you have this like whole like talking stage a situationship stage and you're figuring the other person out and I thought that was very standard and very normal. And at the time, I would have said I really liked it. At the time, I would have said I love the butterflies. I love the chase. Like, I love the thrill of the unknown and just, like, the chase of it all. And then I started dating Matt, and I was like, fuck that. That was actually so toxic and so terrible. The best thing in the world is being with a person who makes their intentions and their feelings clear from the get-go, and you never have to wonder, and you never have to worry. So I would say... I know that sometimes the butterflies and the chase feels exhilarating and feels, it can almost make you feel like you're falling in love because you just become addicted to the adrenaline and become addicted to the moments of attention that you get from them. And then when they pull back, you're like, what's going on? It makes you want them more. And then this like, give and take and cat and mouse is so exhilarating. But is that what you would want a long-term partnership or even a marriage to feel like? No, like you there you can keep the spark alive while still being completely secure in your partner's intentions towards you. You can be passionate. You can be, have an exciting relationship 
while not having to wonder and guess every five seconds about how they feel about you and what they want and like what their intentions are. So that would be my biggest piece of advice is to hold on. And if someone is playing games and is doing the cat and mouse thing, I personally feel like that's a red flag. I wouldn't do that. Another thing I wish I had known in my dating life prior to meeting my husband is I wish I would have given myself time to enjoy getting to know a person without romanticizing an idea of them that I created in my head. I wish that I had gone on more dates or like casually dated people and just allow the relationship to be what it was. Like maybe this is just a person you're casual with. Maybe this is a person you've just gone on a few dates with without immediately starting to think, okay, how would we work in the future? Is this a person I could see myself being with? Is this a person I could bring home to my family? Like whenever I was interested in someone, my brain would just start to create like these fantasy scenarios where I would evaluate their compatibility with me based off of things that were probably never going to happen because it was someone I was very casually dating. Does that make sense? I wish I had been okay with things being casual instead of just wondering what it was going to lead to. Because the truth is, not every person you meet is your soulmate. And there are loads of people who are very nice, like nice people, good people that you can enjoy yourself with. You can go on a couple of dates with and you enjoy their company. But for whatever reason, you know, it's not really worth pursuing, but they're a nice person. I wish that I had just allowed myself to meet more nice people and enjoy the company of nice people without getting stressed and wondering if it was going to turn into anything, and if it was going to turn into anything, how long it would last, and if it would work, and like blah, 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 blah. Just be in the moment. Just understand when you go on a date with someone that maybe a date is all it is, maybe three dates is all it is, you know, maybe a month is all it is, and you can enjoy getting to know people, and it doesn't, you don't have to stress and wonder, is every person I'm interested in, is every person I'm speaking to, like, a potential future husband. That is a lot of pressure to put on yourself and to put on the other person. It's so much pressure to put on the other person. Just let things develop naturally. Let seriousness and closeness and intimacy in a relationship develop naturally. Enjoy the stage that you're at. Enjoy the moment that you're in. And what will be, will be. What happens, happens. Okay, I'll do one more. I'm bringing a new puppy home soon and I'm curious about your experience. Congratulations on a new member of your family. That's so exciting. I have lots of thoughts. Congratulations on the new puppy. I'm sure you've done your research. I'm sure you're super prepared. The things that I am very glad that we did from the get-go, I am very, very thankful that we started crate training from day dot. Like the moment that we brought Fergus home, we started familiarizing himself with his crate, getting him comfortable in it. I'm so glad we did that. Our crate training experience was very short, very, very short. It was like two or three days and he was completely crate trained. He loves it now. He puts himself down for naps in the middle of the day. He goes in by himself. He gets cozy because it's like his bedroom. It's his safe space. He feels very comfortable and safe in there. If there's a really loud noise that's stressful, like if the vacuum is on or if he's just really tired or he's in a bad mood, he goes in there by himself. Sometimes he doesn't stay in there for very long. Sometimes he just goes in for like a minute or two and then he comes back out. But it's very clear that Fergus feels like his crate is his space. And I'm really glad we started crate training. 
immediately. And the way we did that was just making the crate a fun and pleasant place to be. We gave him loads of treats in the crate. We kept the door open so that he could wander in and out. It's just like part of the house. And then this was the hard part. But when he did whine in the crate on the first night, we get, we had to give him time to get used to it. And that was really difficult because when your puppy is crying, all you want to do is comfort them. And we never allowed him to get like really, really distressed in the crate. Like if he was genuinely upset, then we didn't force him to be in there because we obviously wanted him to keep having these positive associations with the crate. We didn't want it to be a scary place for him. But if he was just like crying and moaning a little bit, we just allowed him time to get used to it. And literally, guys, within like two nights, he was totally used to it. He loves it now. And he's almost four months old and he literally loves his crate. So start doing that immediately. We also started potty training immediately. We started telling him to go potty like every single time he went to the bathroom. We use a fresh patch, which is a, a patch of real grass that you can put out on your balcony that they can use before they have all of their vaccinations. It helps get them used to going on real grass. And then it's on a delivery service. So we get it replaced every week or every two weeks. That's really helpful if you live in an apartment and you have a balcony. We just really didn't want to use pee pads for too long because we didn't want him to become too used to going in the house. So the fresh patch has worked wonders for us. If you have an apartment balcony or if you just don't have a backyard, I would highly recommend that. We fed him from our hands a lot the first couple of weeks. We got him really used to eating out of our hands. He doesn't have any resource gardening tendencies. He's very comfortable around us and he's just not defensive. Yeah, he just doesn't resource guard because we started feeding him out of our hands immediately. I don't know what kind of puppy you have. We have a golden retriever. So we just made sure to have so many things he was allowed to chew on. The mouthiness and the teething so far, I think, has been the most difficult part of raising him. The potty training, not that bad. Crate training, not that bad. The teething, oh my God, you should see my arms right now. They are scratched and like ugh, just scratched to hell. But we just made sure to always have things on hand for him to chew, which has been really helpful. We've also gotten him used to us touching his paws, his ears, his nails, his belly, his nose, like every part of him. We've just gotten him used to us touching. So that way when he goes to the vet or he goes to the groomer, he doesn't freak out when anybody's cleaning his ears. He doesn't freak out when he's getting his nails trimmed because he's just used to those being touched and it being safe and everything's fine. And, you know, he just doesn't mind that much. I did so much research before we brought him home. And my dad is a veterinarian and I worked in an animal hospital for six years. So I felt pretty prepared going into it. And there are still moments that will really surprise you. So I don't think it's possible to like be a thousand percent prepared. I was really prepared and there have still been moments that have been surprising, unexpected, frustrating. I would say for me, the most frustrating moments were just adapting to a new schedule. Like puppies have their own schedules and you have to get them on a schedule. They're like babies. They're like human babies. You have to get them on a schedule. And so for me, I think the frustrating part was really just changing my schedule to suit his needs but you get used to it. Like you just adapt. You're the grown up. You're the adult. So you can just adapt. And once you get used to your new schedule and you get used to the new distribution of your time, it feels fine. I mean, it feels good. Like it's very rewarding because no matter what you're giving up or how you're changing your schedule, the reward is that you have like the cutest, most adorable, most loving, happy puppy. So I think it's totally worth it. 
I would say if you're doing this with a partner, make sure that you have a clear delineation of duties right from the start. Like something that was really helpful for me and Matt is that when we were potty training him at first, like before he could hold it all the way through the night, we just said, okay, I get up with him in the middle of the night and then Matt gets up with him early in the morning. So we just knew like what time of night each person was getting up. It allowed both of us to adjust to new sleep schedules without too much disruption. Because at first he was going to the bathroom like four times a night and neither of us were getting any sleep. So that's where we're like, okay, Mary gets up at these times. Matt gets up at these times. Both of us get to sleep and we know when we are able to sleep. So I think just making sure you have a clear understanding of who's doing what, what responsibility belongs to who. I think all of that was really helpful. I'm trying to think. There's probably so many more things. I feel like I could talk for an hour about bringing a new puppy home because it's been about two months now and this experience has changed my life for the better and changed like Matt and I's life together as a couple and changed our family. It's just been very rewarding and it's just really nice and I love him so much and I just feel like it's been such a beautiful experience for the two of us. Just we have been a little family for years now and now we have a third member of our family and it's just the cutest puppy in the entire world. And last night I'm still sick so I'm like barely holding myself together but I was on the couch Matt's on the couch and Fergus was laying down in between us and we were watching a movie and it was just one of those wholesome moments where you're like oh my god my heart is so full like the person I love and the pet that I love we're just all together I don't know this sounds so sappy oh my god you're gonna love it it's gonna be hard there are going to be difficult moments but you are going to love it persevere you can get through it Start training immediately, start crate training immediately, potty training immediately. There's so many great resources online. No matter what question you have about what your puppy is doing, someone, there is a dog trainer on TikTok that's made a video for it, okay? I would say that raising Fergus has gotten me back on TikTok more than I have this entire year because there are so many amazing dog trainers on there. And every time I have a question about what Fergus is doing or like what I should be doing, I just type it into the TikTok search bar and there's a dog trainer somewhere on TikTok that's made a video about it. So I've been on TikTok more in the last like month than I have been all year solely for that reason. And I don't mind because I've gotten really, really helpful information. So no matter what you're going through, someone has gone through it before and just enjoy it. The puppy stage goes by so fast. Fergus has literally tripled his size from when we first bought him home to now. It's been, I think, seven weeks, tripled his size. It's insane how fast they grow. So just enjoy it. They're not going to be puppies forever. Just enjoy it. Okay, you guys, thank you for bearing with me through my gross voice and my throat clearing and my coughing and my congestion and just my sick energy. Thank you for bearing with me and listening to this episode. Very exciting update about the merch. It's coming next week. Mark your calendars. There will be more information on my Instagram this week pretty soon, but merch is coming next week. Check on my Instagram for more details. I'm very excited for you guys to see the products. And thank you very much for listening to this episode, for putting up with my sickness, my illness. I'm going to go rest now. I'm going to go make some throat coat tea and take a nap and spray my Beekeepers Naturals throat spray all over myself. And I'm going to go just try to rest so that I can be better for next week. I love you guys. I hope you are having the best week ever and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.